From Hong Kong, this is Mea Kupa, the Lessons Learned from Startups podcast, based upon the Postmodern Conference, where founders, investors, lawyers, and mentors share their stories about working on, with, or for startups. Today, we have Aaron Rubin. Aaron Rubin is the founder of Ship Hero, a SaaS company that makes a warehouse smarter. Welcome, Aaron. Hi, thanks for having me. Aaron, how did you end up in startups? So I've only ever run companies my whole life. Um, so started my first company um, in college at 19, ran that until um, around 2014 when I started Ship Hero. I ran both overlap for a few years uh, while Ship Hero was starting. Um, so yeah, my previous company wouldn't qualify as a startup. It's more of just like an online business. We sold uh, apparel for a martial art called Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. But it was like a lifestyle business, like, uh, you know, five to $10 million in revenue and self-funded, you know, nothing fancy, just a way to make a living. And then, um, you know, Ship Hero, we started like end of 2013, 2014, and that we planned to build into like a, you know, a substantial size um, company, which we're still working on. Interesting martial arts apparel when you still was in school. Like, where did that came from? Like, what was the need that you saw? Or did you have to need yourself? Or like, how did that start? Yeah, totally not intentional. So I had, I got always made my money online. Like, um, so this was in 1999 when I started my my first company. Um, before that, I was making money online with like some content and ads and like. You know, instead of like mowing lawns as a kid, like I just made my money with like doing different stuff on the internet. And um, this was supposed to be just a little bit of a side business with a partner, make a little extra, you know, beer money, uh, live in college. And um, after it took like a year to launch it because then there was no like Shopify or anything like to build your own shopping cart, get your own credit card processing, right? Everything was from scratch. But I, I was a computer program. I'd been coding um you know self-taught since i was a kid so i did all that and then um by the time i was um going to my junior year of college my third year of college i was making more from that business that i was going to make after graduating in two years so i just sort of took the courses i wanted for junior year knowing that i was never going to finish um but i'd already committed to that third year so i just did that and then um but basically i just spent almost my whole time working and just would show up for exams and, and the classes that I liked. And, um, but it was totally, totally unintentional. I did not think it through. It wasn't like, Oh my God, this is my passion. I didn't know anything about it. Um, it was just accidental and, um, it just turned out to be successful because, um, it was super early in the, in e-commerce and, you know, we might not have been very good at it, but we were the only one, you know, selling that sort of product online. So people bought from us. Yeah, because uh, sometimes super early is not uh, the best way. Like uh, we know Webvan, we know those kind of like similar uh, companies, right? They were also super early and, and they didn't make it. So how come the martial arts uh, apparel? Like was that something close to you or? No, it was the co my co-founder. So it was a family friend. It was his idea, but he wasn't technical. Um, but he liked, you know, he liked the sport and he knew the industry. So I was like the technical co-founder. Um, so I didn't know anything about it. I didn't take my first class of a martial art till like 10 years later. Um, and you know, part of the reason we were successful in web van wasn't is we had no money and no one was going to give, you know, me at, you know, 19 years old, 
any money and no <laughs> no reason to trust me with any money. So we had, we were profitable. Like we started it with, um, I think me and my partner each put in $1,250, so $2,500 total. And three months later, we had already taken that out and we were taking profit. So we weren't trying to build like a big venture. We were just trying to make a couple extra dollars. Um, so we weren't over investing. It was just our time and, and a few bucks. Okay. Okay. Interesting. At, at one point you saw indeed what you already said, like, this is going to make me more money than even if I like graduate college and, and, and find a job. When you came to that realization, like, was it hard for you to at that point indeed say like, Hey, let's, let's stop college and let's go and do this full time or how was your yeah um, your family around you or, or the people around you uh, were they supporting that or did you have to uh, defend yourself um it was easy for me from i was already basically doing it full time even though i was technically in college like i was i was basically working all day i was just working out of my dorm room um so it was very natural um it was like, what else am I going to do? I'm going to like get a job and then shut down this business. And I'm going to make less money. Like, it doesn't make sense. Like, it sort of wasn't really another. <laughs> there wasn't another logical choice there. Um, so you know, there was some family pressure. Like, oh, you should finish. So like, I technically like deferred. I didn't like drop out, but I had never planned on going back. I just did that. So my mother would be a little happier. And um, yeah, and then like a couple of years later, I was making more money than like my parents were making and I was like, you know, 22. So it was like, well, you know, I don't know. It seems like this is, this is the right path. Um, so. Okay. Uh, and at that point they were, uh, not that m money is always a, a good sign of profitable or at, at least a good direction, but it, it gives a little bit more of a, uh, of a push that way that you can convince your, uh, yeah, your parents or the people that you live with, uh, that it is the good uh, choice that you, uh, that you made. And, then you've been running that company for a couple of years, but then what I saw is that you had what you said also was that you have an overlap with running the martial arts apparel company and Ship Hero. Where did the idea for Ship Hero start? So when we were running the company, we shipped a lot of stuff. Um, so sort of like what I wanted was this company to exist, like Ship Hero and. Um, it didn't or like i couldn't basically get the functionality i wanted for like like less than several million dollars right and that was just like way too expensive um and so we built our own not intending to sell just for internal use and you know i had people um like friends of mine who like came by and they saw the system they're like can i use this It's amazing i want to it's much better than how my warehouse runs can i use it i was like no i didn't build it it's like just built for myself um, but I knew there was a demand, like people would want it. Um, so I figured if I want it, a couple other people want it, there's probably a market for it. And then what had always held me back, I had some, you know, major financial issues sort of in the middle there. Um, and then I had, um, I had to like really work my way out of that. So I'd like borrowed money and like, um, had a lot of debt. So by the time I got, to that point in time, like 20, 2013, 2014, I was making enough money where I didn't feel like I had to like keep focused on the one business just in order to you know support my family. I got married, I had a kid, um, another kid. So like, um, uh, you know, at that point, the, the martial arts business was decently profitable. It was making enough money that 
I can afford to like, you know, take my foot off the gas and like do a little bit less hard work. And like, even if the profits went down by 20%, like I'd still be able to feed my family. Like I wasn't worried about it anymore. I had a little money in the bank to, to invest in something that was more exciting for me. And then Shapiro was um, much more exciting to me because I like programming and running the martial arts business. I was mostly doing like apparel design and marketing and like it was paying the bills, you know, family to feed, but it wasn't anything that I like was particularly passionate about. Um, so Shapiro let me get back into programming, product, the stuff that I really liked. Okay. Going back to the uh, apparel company, because at one point you said, right, uh, you were running it from your uh, from your dorm room together with a co-founder. But at one point, of course, it's it's, it's growing and you have to start. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's more than you can handle uh, by the two of you. You have to start hiring your, your first staff. Like what, what was there, the choices that you made? What was the scary or the, or the non-scary part of that? Um, yeah, so, I mean, we've, we hired really um, low-level people in the beginning. So, like, basically people working in the warehouse. So they were paid hourly. It wasn't a huge commitment of, like, salary or, um, or anything like that. Um, so that wasn't bad. I think the scariest one was... Um, I hired this um, this guy named Yosef Haas, who was a friend of mine from um, from growing up. I knew him since I'm 11 years old, and he was working for another company. And when I hired him, I convinced him to leave his other company to to join my company. And that was a little bit scarier because it was like he has a good job, he's making good money, and now he's going to work for me. And then if like I mess this up, now. I, I messed up, you know what I mean? Like I messed up his life too. Um, so that was the scariest one, but he's, um, he's still, we still work together. He's a partner in Shapiro. Um, so, I mean, I think it, it worked out. It worked out great, but that was, that was definitely a scary moment. When you take on that first person who you're like, yeah, I'm really responsible for this person's life. And he was also married and, you know, he had kids and, you know, like, all right, that's a little more responsibility. Yeah. Were there, for instance, people that at one point uh, in, in that journey you wanted to hire, but they weren't that risk-taking? And then at that point, uh, it, it didn't went through, like they said no? Or were you always able to uh, convince people that you wanted to work for you to come and work for you? No, definitely not able to convince most people. Um, you know, I was pretty young also, so like trying to convince people older than you to work for you. I think it's a little bit harder. Maybe these days, not so much because people are used to the idea of like young people founding companies. But when you're like 22 and you're trying to hire someone who's like 35 to work for you, um, I wasn't I wasn't very successful with that. Um, so, but I got eventually I got older. So, <laughs> but probably uh, getting older that's just one part of the thing. Like, what did you learn? from that that you're basically doing now differently than what you were doing then but by presenting the company or, or talking to the people that yeah, that you want to hire what what are the few key points that you learned by yeah, at that point getting a few no's and then at one point you're getting yes beside of getting older yeah so our coo her name's maggie so one thing she says is everyone wants to play for a winning team so just presenting the what we're doing, what's working, why it's working, um, people are excited about that. Um, and especially with like, we're still a fairly small company. Um, 
it being part of a winning team where also you can feel like, you know, you have some ownership of that process, right? You're not just one like small cog in, in a, in a large company. Um, the right people get really excited about that. And, and, um, you don't have to, you know, usually don't have to sell them that hard on like, why did, on like, why to join? It's more like, yeah, I'd like to join, like, what's the role and, um, you know, work on comp and things like that. But like the, the momentum and the vision, I think is really what gets people on board. Okay. And uh, just a side question, uh, does the series of Cobra Kai did any influences on the uh, revenue of the company? Um, so I don't know, actually, because I'm not, yeah, I'm not super involved day to day anymore. But also the the pandemic really um, had a huge impact because um, you basically made, it was illegal to do the sport in the United States. And that's where our market is um because it's brazilian jiu-jitsu it's like wrestling it's um extremely close um quarters um so there was a lot of states where like you just like it was illegal to do the sport um and so not a lot of people were buying equipment for the sport so the last year um wasn't actually that terrible but um definitely saw saw a negative impact um so i'm not sure if cobra kai brought, brought any of it back but it probably will it has in the past i know that um before my time but karate kid when that came out i spoke to someone who had a business then selling that sort of apparel and they saw like a huge huge increase in um in, in revenue just from like people being like i want to do karate because of karate kid of course, indeed, uh, COVID has a lot of influence in a lot of businesses, sometimes positive, sometimes negative. When it comes to uh, shipments and what you see at your clients from uh, Ship Hero, do you see a shift from uh, companies that all of a sudden wake up and say like, hey, we've done a lot of things uh, offline, we have to now start doing it online? Uh, or companies that already were doing particular things online, uh, but weren't able to sell that because of uh, lockdowns and are now selling other stuff? Or what? how does it influence the business of uh, Ship Hero? Yeah, so we saw a bunch of things. So we saw a lot of ship from store and buy online pickup from store. So a lot of our customers have both like a central warehouse as well as um, physical stores. Um, so... Um, in the past, they were more focused on like just shipping from the warehouse. And now that they had all these stores with all these stock, all this stock that was um, idle, right? They couldn't have people in the store. They started to ship from the stores. And like our system is really cheap to to roll it out. It takes like two hours of training and like $100 a month to add a store. So we had people that added like 50 or 100 stores during the pandemic to, um, to ship from stores so that they utilize the stock. The team there has some work to do and then also uh, buy online pickup in store where you can um instead of having to go to the store and purchase the item inside you go online you you purchase the item and then the the people in the store use our software to prepare the order um and then put it in a box or a bag and then you pick it up from the from the front door um so those those were really big and then it's just some interesting things where like we um, there's like uh, Mars, the chocolate company, right? One of the biggest companies in the world. They um, started using us in during the pandemic where it took them like maybe two or three weeks to go to come up with this idea. And it was basically you could get like Snickers boxes for like nurses and they set up a Shopify store and they um, they installed our software 
and um, they were online in um, in a few weeks shipping these products where normally a company like that, just dealing with procurement is usually like a six month process. Um, and this was just like three weeks. Um, so there was definitely that big, like it, it just jolted people um, to do stuff that normally they wouldn't have the urgency to do. I can also uh, foresee indeed that uh, when it comes to like say like the, the mom and pop stores or the smaller uh, companies that have stock in their stores their stock keeping is not always up to date that kind of thing like how how does ship hero uh, solve that problem yeah so we're mostly working with people that have um pretty large online presence like um selling at least let's say 10 million dollars a year worth of goods online so the smaller people i think in general are you going to um either have some existing solutions or these days Shopify has like a point of sale solution, which integrates with their online, which is getting better. Um, and there's a bunch of other vendors that do that. Um, but we only do it for the people that are really mostly selling online. And then um, they're using their stores as a way to supplement their distribution. Like we work with um, company Canadian Tire, which is like the largest Canadian retailer. And they have stores all over Canada before they were using us, they would just ship from one warehouse um, for these products to the whole country. And like Canada is huge. So it's shipping at thousands of miles, but they have hundreds of stores. So the stores are always pretty close to an end customer. And that just saves that, um, saves that time, saves that cost and saves that like carbon emissions. Cause why ship something across the country when you could ship it, you know, a couple hundred kilometers. Um, so those are sort of places where we get involved in, on the ship from store. The mom and pops usually, um, don't use us. Hmm. But when you talk about that, indeed, it's like, especially when it comes to combination orders, like for instance, there is something in stock at the main warehouse and there is a part of the order is available at the location shop. Do you have any data on like the actual savings of that kind of Orders because at the, in, in theory, if you ship that twice, or at least one part of the order is being shipped from the from the local store, and one part of the uh, order is shipped from the country-wise or regional warehouse, um, uh, is there any data on uh, cost savings or that kind of thing? Yes, yeah, so, I mean we do the analysis like in the in the software so that you can decide if it makes sense to ship this together or separate. It really depends on. Uh, the size of the items. Um, so it's it's varied and not even varied within a company, but within the, the actual order. But we have that logic in the software. So um, it's usually pretty automated for the for the merchants that set that up. Okay. And then, of course, indeed, especially when it comes to that kind of solutions, garbage in is garbage out. Like, how do yep. you... How, how do you make sure with the client that the garbage that's going in is very clean and, 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 and up to date? Yeah, so I mean, we do the receiving processes also in our software. So we have we do, we learned from mistakes to provide not just the software but also the process. So we make videos explaining how to use the software because um, you, you're amazed when you like go to a customer warehouse and you like go out of luck. You're like, that's not no, that's not the way to use it. Um, so yeah, we provide that process. Um, so we provide the intake process. We have what's called the cycle count, which is a way to confirm stock. Um, so we do that, um, you know, that that functionality on the front end to make sure the information is correct. In some cases, we're dealing with um, an ERP or a larger um, solution. So like 
sometimes we'll work with um, work with like Frito-Lay where they have like a, a large production facility um, where they're shipping mostly to like Walmart and big companies like that. And they don't use us for that. And then they'll take some of the product and put in like a mini warehouse within their warehouse, which is run by our software for their direct to consumer part. Cause that's the part that our software does. Um, and then we're um, integrating with their co-packing software to move that data back and forth. And they're physically like logging that as they're physically moving pallets of goods back and forth. There it's a little trickier um, to make sure that it's right. Cause you're relying on outside software. But these days the, the, you know, it depends on the company. Some companies have these like super complicated tech stacks where it's like, there's 10 pieces of software in between like you and the, the actual order. Um, but most companies these days, like we work with a company called Newlogy out of Canada that, that runs a lot of these large co-packers and their software is pretty good. So you tend to get fairly accurate data. But if you have a bad ERP with bad data, then you spend your whole life with never getting it right. Yeah. And uh, of course, like uh, you started the company because you had a you know, itch to scratch. Uh, you said like, hey, like uh, I wanted to use this for myself, and that's of course one thing, right? Uh, because that's something that you know, and you you know that you can code that by heart because you're very ingrained into the problem. But as soon as you start making the decision, hey, let's let's also make this available for others, then at that point you get a truckload of exceptions or truckload of other uh, business requirements from uh, other clients. How did you get to know that and how did you did that discovery and how did you make the decisions on what to build first and what to build uh, later? Yeah. So, I mean, we started with a lot of no's. I think that helped us a lot of like, these are things we're not going to do so that we don't even have to have a conversation. Um, so like we do the direct to consumer, um, so retail, you know, online order, but not like restocking Walmart or, or something like that. Um, and that really just eliminates like a lot, whole set of functionality that, um, uh, some of our competitors provide. And we just, we say, we don't do it. Like we want to be the best in the world at the direct consumer piece. So we're not going to touch that piece. Um, these days we're actually starting to, so we're, we will launch some of that stuff at the end of this year, but that's because we felt like we got the direct consumer piece pretty well working. And now, okay, we can expand scope a little bit. Um, so we did that. There was a couple of other things. We also knew sort of where we wanted to be in the technology stack, which is um, like uh, we got a lot of uh, demand in the beginning to work as like a warehouse management system within like NetSuite, which is a popular ERP for small mid-sized business businesses. Um, and just really focus on like just the warehouse part and be pretty narrow. Um, but I was like a company like where I, the company that I had prior, like we didn't have an ERP um, and I didn't want to only serve companies that had an ERP. I wanted to be able to serve sort of a wider range, um, including smaller people. Um, and I also felt like I could do a better job of um, in the warehouse by owning a little bit of the stuff around the warehouse, like perch sorters and some other things. Um, and it could always be sent in via you know, the API and via connectors, but at least to have that in there. So you can, you don't have to use a bunch of different pieces of software. You can really have everything within like just three pieces of software, like your sales software, our software, which is your warehouse management software, and then your accounting software. And that could be your whole business, even if you're doing a hundred million dollars in revenue. So that was always my goal. So that also gave me an idea of like where I wanted to fit in 
and who customers I wanted. So if people are like, oh, I'm going to slot you in with this really narrow and this really narrow solution, I would say, well, that's not really what we're trying to do. So I'm not going to focus on that. So I knew what we didn't want to do. And I knew sort of where in the market we wanted to play. So that basically like eliminated like 80% of the decisions. And then the other 20% of the decisions, you know, I made the best decision I could, but probably, you know, flipping a coin would have been just as, just as good or, or if not better. Okay. How did you, uh, just very practical, how did you uh, manage all those requests? Like, did you have like a, a software tool for that? Or was it just uh, through email with uh, potential clients that you were discussing that? Or, uh, and, and how big was the team where you were at that point uh, working on this solution? Yeah, so when we started, it was just like three of us. So I was talking to all the customers. So like I dealt with it directly. These days, um, we use Jira, so everything gets logged. And then I actually go through all the feature requests every week. So I usually have somewhere between like 50 and 100 that I have to go through every week. Um, and, you know, either, you know, just respond to them. Like, yes, we'll do this. No, this is why. Merge it with something else. This is the roadmap down the line, whatever. Um, but it takes a decent amount of my time up. Um, yeah, that's that's how we manage it today. Okay, how big is the development team right now? So on the pro on the product side, um, including designers um, and engineers, it's around sixty people. Six zero. Mm -hmm. I recently asked uh, somebody the same question, and he said, "Let me check uh, how many people are in this uh, Slack channel," because he didn't yeah, know yeah. the, uh, the headcount at that point because everybody was it working remote. So at one point you were with three, now you're at 60. Like, how do you like prepare yourself to scale to like from three to 60? Because that's like a lot of challenges there. Right. So, um, you know, it, we started like 2013, 2014. It's already, you know, early 2021. So it wasn't that quick. Um, it didn't, it never felt um, rushed. If anything, I felt like we were going a too slow a lot of times because we we're, we're not, um, we're not venture back. So we're bootstrapped. So, um, so I felt like we were going slower rather than too fast. Um, the comp the whole company now is like around 200 employees, but a lot of the people are not doing development, right? They're doing other things. Um, yeah. So I don't know. It never felt too, too terrible. I think, um, a lot of times, I think we could have gone faster in a bunch of different places, both in terms of how fast we were hiring, but more importantly, um, how sophisticated we let the software be. I think I, I held it back sometimes um, to try to make sure that it was always like a system that I could really understand and be able to fix and everything, which was a mistake. Um, I should have let that go a little bit earlier um, and let some things be, you know, not, I don't have to really understand how every piece of the technology works. Um, but yeah, like seven years, 60, 60 product people, it's actually not, like it's not terrible. Like people do that in like a year these days. Yeah, especially when it comes to uh, venture-backed uh, companies, right? They they scale up uh, pretty quickly. Um, you choose not to do that. You choose to do that uh, bootstrapped. Sounds like a very conscious uh, decision. Did you were thinking at one point to get external uh, capital in, or did you from the start of said like, no, we're going to bootstrap this? No, I, I did. I I've tried and failed to raise money. Um, okay. So yeah, it was, um, there's been times where there was the ability to raise money and I didn't want to. Um, it seemed like anytime I wanted to raise money, there wasn't anyone interested in when people are interested. Um, I wasn't, um, 
but yeah, I mean, I'm not in like I'm in New York, but I'm not like part of the tech scene or anything like that in New York. Um, it's surprising how the degree to which um, sort of like that personal network sort of thing matters. Like right now, like we like we're a known company, so we, like you don't need that anymore. But when we were just starting out, I did try to 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 raise some capital. Um, but we didn't have like, I mean, we had a decent numbers, decent product, decent reputation, but we didn't have like any sort of connections or pedigree. And, um, you know, like, I mean, could have got like a tier three investor, but I couldn't get anyone who was really good to take my phone call. Mm. In hindsight, uh, are you glad that that didn't happen? Or uh, would you said like, we would have been somewhere totally different, way bigger right now if we would have? Yeah, so I think in the beginning, it really would have helped. It was really, really slow in the beginning where it was just like we had no money. And then like my co-founder wasn't doing it full time. He had a job. So it was just like me and like it was really slow. And I had, you know, if we had raised a million dollars um, seed round, it would have or pre-seed they call it these days. That would have helped. It would have probably saved us a couple of years of just working just really slow because we had no money. Um, so we were doing everything ourselves. After that, um, sort of that, so then no one wanted to give us money. Then once we, we had some traction, it wouldn't have helped because we had to really understand what we were trying to build and things like that. So then it was, it was okay to be slow. Um, so, you know, I think it just ebbs and flows of the points in time where like, it's good to be fast or good to be slow. The nice thing about being not venture backed is you get to be not slow at certain times when like sort of figure things out. Um, yeah. And then, you know, right now we have like, we're a decent sized company. So we have a lot of cash flow anyways. So, um, like more money sure can always help, but it's not like we can't do the things that we want to do. We can't hire the people we want to do. It's more of like, how do we hire the right people? We spend a lot of time on like, what's our interview process, um, and things like that. That's really more the bottleneck, like finding good people that you want to work with rather than like, oh, we don't have enough money. Like we have enough money. What would have been one of the biggest challenges you faced in your entrepreneurial life right now? In Ship Hero or my co my company before? Because I had a lot more problems with the company before. Uh, whatever. Like I was talking to somebody else recently and uh, that person said like, you haven't been an entrepreneur if you haven't been been in a net uh, near-death experience. Uh, so maybe something like that. doesn't matter which, which company. Yeah. So I think I've had three near-death experiences. So the first one was the worst. So the first one was a fundamental mistake I made. Um, so what happened was... Um, the 2008 um, financial crisis uh, had two problems. One, we lost all our access to capital. So like we had line of credit and things like that. And they, the bank took it all away. Not because we didn't pay, but they took it away from everyone then. Um, and then the other problem was uh, there was a large, um, uh, large recession. So there's a lot less spending on, um, on, sending your kids to martial arts schools, which is how we made our money. So we went from our worst year prior to 08 was up 25%. And then we had a minus 33% year. So that went, so revenue went down a lot and we lost our, um, we lost our access to capital at the same time. Those two things seemed bad, but that actually wasn't the main problem that actually unveiled the main problem, which is, um, we didn't have the money we thought we had. So 
Like I did not, this was my mistake. I didn't look at the uh, financials beyond what I was given. So I would like get a PL and a balance sheet like every quarter and like it always looked good. Um, and I would get my paycheck and that was it. My, my co-founder did all the accounting. The accountant was a friend of his, which was another mistake. So like, I never spoke to him. Like I never spoke to the accountant. Um, and I had no, I didn't have access to the bank account. I didn't know what was going on. Um, and it turned out that there was, um, the, the accounts were wrong. Like it said, we had made a certain amount of money and we had a certain amount of money in the, in the bank and, um, we had made less money and we had less money in the bank. Um, and, um, so that came to light. So the story behind that was basically, it's like a horrible personal story. I don't get the whole personal story, but basically like I went to the accountant's office, um, and he's like, yeah, you never made this money. And like, you're, you're net negative. Like you're insolvent. You don't have any money. You have more debt than cash. Um, and, um, and obviously the business was going down at that point. Revenue was dropping because of the the financial crisis. So, um, it wasn't like we were going to grow our way out of it. So that was, that was a pretty near death experience. Um, I offered, and I had personally signed on this debt. Um, not that I had ever looked at it. I didn't even have access to it, but I had signed my name on it because I was, uh, I owned 50% of the company. So I personally guaranteed it. So, um, I went to my co-founder and I told him that, um, he can have the whole company, um, but he has to get me off the personal guarantees and like, I'll go get a job or something, but I don't want to, there's hundreds of thousands of dollars that we owed. That I didn't even know we owed. And I'm like, I'm, I don't want to get stuck with this the rest of my life. I don't know how am I going to pay it back? Like, I'm not even sure I'm going to get a job with my no college and you know what I mean? Um, so I offered him that I said, take the whole company, take the whole thing and, um, just take it out of the debt off my hands. And he said, no. So I said, um, well, I got upset, but then eventually I said, okay. Well, if you're not going to do that, um, I, um, my father was, um, really, really generous and he offered to, um, take out a mortgage on his house. He had paid off his house, um, take out a mortgage on the house of $350,000 and give me that money, uh, to, to try to save the business. So what I told the, my co-founder was basically I'll do the opposite where I'll take this $350,000 use it to pay off the debt, um, that you owe. So I'll get you off the debt and then just give me the company, um, which he agreed to. So then I owed the company and then I had the $350,000 for my father plus another, I don't know, several hundred thousand dollars worth of debt from the, you know, other outstanding debts. Um, which, um, so yeah, with, with a company that was in decline. Um, and that's where I was sort of restarting from, um, in 2009. So that was a really close to uh, really, uh, really near death experience. And all I sort of only had two choices really then it was either sort of go that route or declare bankruptcy. There was no third option available. I would have taken a third option, but there was no third option. It was either bankruptcy or, or take my father's money. So I took my father's money and then worked really, really hard, um, to eventually pay it all back, um, and, and get the company back onto, to good foot, good footing, which, which we did. Yeah. Kudos to you. That's quite a harrowing story that you have to, yeah, at that point, put yourself into debt that much to to save that company. You have to have a lot of faith that it would be able to. And at that point, my question would be: Why were you served statements, prob- uh, profit and loss, and balance statements that were not, uh, yeah, uh, reflecting the actual truth? 
Yeah. So I don't know. There's only two options, right? Which is either it was incompetence or theft. Those are the only two options. I don't know which it is. Um, I spoke to, I, I looked into it and basically the short answer was um, the only way I was going to really find out was to hire a forensic accounting firm, um, which I had no money to do. Um, and I didn't feel like I didn't feel like there was any point. So like if I found out it was incompetence, like what was I going to do? And if I found that it was theft, like what was I going to do? Like he, I don't think he had the money and he was going anywhere with it. Like if he had it, it was spent, you know, it wasn't that much money. Like, um, so I, I feel like there was not, I wasn't going to get anything from it. Um, it would just hurt myself by sort of wasting a lot of time and money by trying to investigate it. So I just let it go. Okay. And very generous of your father to, to mortgage his house and, and then at that point uh, lend you that money. What makes you so sure that you were able to yeah, pay that back and to save that business, even though the, 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 the market wasn't that well, right? It wasn't a growing market at that point. Yeah, no, I definitely was not sure that I could. And I really, I really, you know, it was a really painful part of my life when I was trying to make that decision whether I should or not. I, I didn't know what the right answer was. There's a couple of things that um, made me want to do it. One was, um, just a couple of things. One was I had employees and um, I was gonna, if I went, including like my friend of mine that I went and mentioned earlier, um, and if if we went bankrupt, they were all like they were all going to lose their jobs. So I really didn't want to do that. You know, I, I didn't want to make it worse. Like if I took my father's money and then we went bankrupt anyways. Like I didn't help them, and I didn't help you know. And I hurt everyone else. So like I knew that just because it might still be the right decision to go bankrupt, but that was one reason why I really didn't want to. And then also like I um my wife and I had our first child. We had a daughter, and um I just I like I I just didn't want to quit. I just like, for me, it was really important to, to say I never quit. Like I didn't quit on the company and I did like, you know, even if I failed, I would have got to like leave everything on the field, you know, like just give it my hundred percent. Um, and I just, yeah, I didn't want to quit. So I'm like, I wasn't sure it was going to work, but I was sure that I was going to do everything in my power to make it work. Um, and I also figured like I had always made money in other ways on the side. Um, you know, my whole life online. So I always figured that I could always string together some other things to cover the bills and make it work, which I did like while I was running it, like while I was trying to recover that business, I didn't take any money out for salary because there was no money to take. So I did a bunch of other things online and I was working really hard, which was really tough with, you know, a new baby. But um, I did a bunch of other things online to pay my own bills um, and not take the money out of the company. So I just worked really, really hard. To, uh, I knew I could do that. I just felt like I could figure out a way to make some money. So it's uh, all of nothing bet that you took there, or almost like sounds like yep. it. Are you yep. a betting man? No, I have no stocks. I don't go to the casino. Um, I do like playing poker, but I I track on a I don't play anymore because I've got three kids, but I tracked on a spreadsheet like every dollar I ever played in poker and like make sure I'm winning. I'm actually making my okay, it's good, it's safe, but no, I'm definitely not uh not a betting man. I don't know. Okay. Great that it eventually worked out. Taking that that risk, at one point you probably had to take another risk uh, when you're doing uh, Ship Hero. What was the biggest uh, risk that you were taking there? Well, I don't know if it was a risk, but really there was a few times that I really wanted to quit. 
um, really wanted to quit. So it was a couple of times. So there's a few things going on. I was making enough money from my first business that I didn't need Shapiro to be comfortable. So I have enough money to live uh, very nicely for my first business. So I was like, I don't need the money. So keep that in mind. And then two things happened. So one time was really early days. Um, it was just three of us working on the company. And um, there's one customer, they only had like a handful of customers, right? Like five customers. And one customer was like really abusive and like the most abusive customer we ever had. So it was just, I guess, bad luck also, but I didn't know that because I thought like that's how customers are. Um, so really, really abusive customer yelling and screaming on the phone. Um, you know, sometimes cause we made, did, you know, messed up and, and made mistakes and sometimes nothing, it wasn't our fault, but either way he would yell at us. I would yell at me. I would always pick up the phone. And then, um, one time I had, we had only one, it was me, my co-founder and like one employee. And then, uh, my employee called this guy up from his cell phone just to like, I don't know, give him some, some quick piece of information or something. And, um, one night late at night, like he called my, he called the employee's cell phone cause he had a cell phone number and just like berated him. Right. I don't even know what he said cause I wasn't on the call, but he told me after they like really berated him. Um, and so whatever, I called that customer and I, you know, I fired him. I told him like, okay, I'm sorry, you can't use our service anymore. But, um, one of those times it was just like, I'm sitting there. So anyway, so the guy tells me the guy was paying us like, I don't know, maybe like a thousand dollars a month. Right. And he's, you know, yelling at me that I'm taking his thousand dollars a month and like building this other business. And like, I'm building this whole thing and I'm screwing him with this thousand dollars and kept talking about the thousand dollars a month. And I had invested a million dollars of my own cash in this business. Um, and I'm sitting there at like 11 o'clock at night, like working my ass off trying to like make the product for him. And I was just like, I don't know why I'm doing this. Like he doesn't like, I'm not getting any, not only not getting appreciation, I'm getting treated like a piece of garbage. Um, and I'm like, I don't need it. I have enough money. Like, what am I doing this for? So, so that was one time that I really, I really felt like just, just give up, just give up. And, um, and, you know, I sort of came back to the same thing with my, with my, with my daughter, where I was also like, I just, I just don't want to quit. Like, I just don't want to, I just don't want to be the quitter. So even though this sucks, I'm just gonna, I always said like, I'm just not going to quit today. I'll just going to get up in the morning and see how I feel. And then, you know, I just get up in the morning and be like, all right, I'll try one more day. And then, you know, one day after another, eventually you get there. Yeah. Firing clients always very interesting stories indeed. Uh, in my lifetime, I also uh, fired a few, uh, couple of clients, uh, especially when what you say, right. Come to the realization, like, Hey, like, what I'm actually doing right here. Like I'm trying to make some money, but uh, this is worth uh, uh, the fight. This is worth uh, the effort. When you have to make those decisions, like uh, what you had with your previous company or uh, like the, the, the first company and then also with the second company, are there people that you talk to on a regular basis, like advisors or, or people with, uh, with friends that have the uh, entrepreneurial mindset or like how do you come about and make those decisions and yeah, reflect on that. Yeah, I don't have a lot. Uh, like, a, yeah, so like I'm not in like any sort of Silicon Valley peer group. I don't have any friends who are founders of like venture back. Like I have a friend who owns a a nice business, a friend who owns a couple of gyms. But like, no, I don't have friends who have like that sort of tech companies. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, I think it would be better if I did. Honestly, it'd be nice to have some people I could go to sort of mentors or, or for those sort of guidance. Um, don't, um, my co-founder's name is Nicholas. He's really good. So, um, you know, it's a little bit different with a co-founder where, you know, you gotta be a little bit, it's just a little bit of a different relationship. Um, but he's great. So, you know, I talked to him, um, and he's, he's good counsel. Okay. Is there any particular advice that you quite often hear like general advice, uh, generic advice, uh, that you often hear, but you think it's not, uh, a good advice? Oh, so much. Um, I disagree with almost all the advice I see on Twitter. Um, maybe the I, best advice is there not to go to Twitter. Oh, <laughs> no. it's great stuff on Twitter. You just have to know to ignore like 90% of it. Um, I don't know. I just, I, I basically, I feel like everything has, has so many exceptions. Um, that yeah i don't know i just feel like any any sort of like generic advice always has so many exceptions that it's almost useless like i also don't read like i used to read a lot of um sort of like business self-help books like you know malcolm gladwell or like people like that um until one day i realized that i was like i can't think of anything i've done that i can sort of attribute back to these books and I was just like, I don't, so, and I love reading fiction. So I'm like, I'm just going to read, go back to reading fiction. So I stopped, um, I stopped, I stopped reading those, um, books, but I also think it's really hard to get advice or even give advice. Um, because so much of the, so much of everything is context dependent and so intertwined, like, like the way I built my, built my company is so, dependent on the other pieces that sort of like asking for advice on one piece, like, should we be bootstrapped or venture back? Like, well, that also impacts like all the other decisions and they all interact. So sort of really hard to, to get advice um, without someone who's like there every day. And that's why also like really hard to give advice. It's like when people ask for advice, they generally just like ask a bunch of questions and then like, hopefully they, they're informative questions, but like, um, without the context, like, cause like every answer is, is right and wrong. It just depends on like what the situation is. Okay. And is there a piece of advice that you ever gotten that you still like give advice to other people too? Like something that you really stand behind is like, this is a great piece of advice. Um, no, I mean, I, you know, I, I think there's a lot of good concepts. Um, like one good concept I always like is, uh, you know, have a really know what you're trying to accomplish, but don't be too fixated on how you're going to get there. So it's not really telling you much, but sort of telling you what not to do, right? Like if you're coming in with a plan of like, I'm going to do A, B, C to get to D, or sometimes people even like, I'm going to do A, B, and C. I don't know what it's, what my goal is. Like, I feel like that never works because at least in my life, I've always like, picked where I was trying to get to. And then I would take like step a, and then like, find it doesn't work. So like, you go back, you take another step a, right. And like, you just keep taking a bunch of steps, but it's, it's definitely not linear. Right. And like, if you're sort of planning, it's like, if you're playing go and you're planning, like what my move is going to be like four turns out without like, there's so many different ways someone else could have made a move. Like, I don't know, like, it's really tough to, to, to really be rigid. And life is obviously way more complicated with your, 
with your plan. So like sort of, I don't like not a big believer in taking like a lot of planning, but being super important to know what your goal is, right? Because you're never going to get there if you don't know what you want. Okay. And what is not a secret, but most people don't know about you? About myself? Yes. Oh, there's nothing. There's nothing exciting <laughs> that anyone would care about about myself that they don't know. Could also be uh, a specific brand of whiskey that you like, or uh, I don't know. Um, well, I am drinking from a uh, Bluetooth-enabled um, coffee mug, self-heated coffee mug. I'm drinking tea out of it. But I think everyone knows I'm a nerd, so I don't think that's going to surprise. Um, I don't think that's going to surprise anyone. Um, I mean, the people that don't know that I, from my previous business probably don't know that I like to you know, train Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is a really, um, uh, really physical martial art in terms of like it's um, it's uh, it's like a one-on-one -on -one combat. So it's not like you're practicing with like a bag or um, uh, or or doing a form in the air. It's like wrestling, where like there can only like, there's a winner or a loser. Like, even though you're training, like there's a winner or a loser, like every time, um, you know, which I, which I really, I really like, I like that, that competition. And it's, um, I think everyone who does it, like either you love it or hate it, but if you love it, it's like, it's a very primal, um, sort of experience. It's like really hard to match, even if we play like tennis or anything other that's one-on-one, -on -one. it's still not the same. You're not like, three inches from your opponent's face, you know what I mean? So um, it's a unique thing that I, I really enjoy. Okay. okay. And if there's one thing that you want people to take away from this talk, what would it be? Probably to pay attention to what's going on with the money. <laughs> um, if you have a co-founder or really, if you don't have a co-founder, just in general, it's probably a good life experience, uh, life lesson um, to always have a, the, just, it doesn't take that much work to really keep an eye on a bank account. Um, and, um, yeah, that's the, that's the truth, right? Like you're looking at about a piece of paper, a balance sheet, a P and L that's just a piece of paper that someone gave you. Right. Um, but if you're looking at like, what are the checks that are going out the door and how much money's in the bank account? Like, then you really know what's going on and it's always better to be closer to the truth. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much for your valuable insight and sharing of your lessons learned in startups. For the listeners, although the rating system of podcasts is hideous, if you like this Maya Culpa series, you can rate this podcast with five stars and a motivation for the makers. I want to thank Mizuho Crowdbrain for being the venue sponsor of this episode. And I also want to thank Copy Ventures for making this series possible. If you have any suggestions on speakers, uh, let us know. Uh, contact details are in the show notes. This is Jeffrey Brewer. Go out and build something meaningful. Thank you very much, Aaron. Thanks for having me.